What a wonderful thing it is to know that our God did not fail. Amen. Amen. It might have looked bad. It might have looked insurmountable. But he did not fail. And we are here today to commemorate the fact that no matter how bad it looks, as long as it's in the will of God, there is no failure that you have to worry about. We give honor to God for he is the joy and the strength of our life. To Pastor Corey, to all of these great men and women who have gathered together tonight to commemorate this very solemn occasion that while it was brutal that day, we can look back today and celebrate and thank God for. The Gospel according to Luke chapter number 23 Beginning with verse number 33, sorry, beginning with verse number 23, that's where I want to be. Thirty-three is where I want to be. Twenty-three is the chapter. Thirty-three is the verse. You will find that these words have been written, it says, when they came to the place called the skull. There they crucified him and the criminal, one on the right, one on the left. And Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. They cast lots, dividing clothes among themselves. Just for a little while this evening, I want to preach from the theme, Pass it on. Pass it. Jesus is in the culminating moments of his life. It's interesting to me that he is undeterred by the undeniable pain he must be experiencing at this time. While on the flip side of the cross, it is easy for us to glorify this moment. The moment that we are talking about tonight was indeed a horrific and a painful moment. Let's not forget that Jesus was in the pain of his life, not just physically, but spiritually as well. And in spite of that, notice that his focus is not thrown off of the very fact that the people he is sent to assist, the people he is sent to provide needs for, the people he is sent to impact their lives in positive ways and and the people he sent to send provisions of healing, provisions of food, provisions of care, Jesus stays focused in this moment on fulfilling the mission he was sent to complete. Yet despite his consistency, his unfettered focus, his undeniable compassion, and his will to do God's work, and impact the lives of God's people, the same people he is sent to assist. These people now have him hanging on the cross. And while it could uh, be a way that I could use the time to focus on the fact that people that you are sent to help will at times do you wrong, I understand and I've learned from Jesus that it's not worth focusing on the small stuff. Because the reality is that where he is, he knows he's not there because of the people. He's there because of the plan. It is the plan of God that has him here. While God has used the people to allow for his plan to unfold, Jesus is on the cross because God has a plan for him to be there. And I want you to understand this and I want you to see this because it is important to us that where Jesus is, is, an, is as important as what he does at this very moment. So I want you to see that in verse number 33, it says, when they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals. I'm going to come back to that in a little while, but it's amazing to me how often we try to pass a gospel to others that is based on forgiveness, and yet we harbor unforgiveness in our own lives. I want you to see what Jesus does here. Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. 
One of the barriers preventing the church of God today from effectively evangelizing, don't miss this, is a gospel tainted with disingenuous notions we believe are unseen and overlooked. But the world is looking at how we, the ex expressed image of an invisible God, are acting during this time. And this is what I love about what Jesus does. I'm going to get ready to go to my seat. Here it is. Jesus now understands that literally what he is supposed to do is he is supposed to serve as the transition from offense to freedom. <laughs> uh, offenses now possess the potential to incarcerate the one on the receiving side while the one who launched the offense seemingly goes free. That's what's happening here on the cross. After all, it is the people who have done wrong that Jesus is sent to save, and yet Jesus is the one in, in trouble. Jesus is the one on the cross. Jesus is the one in pain. But check this out. He's also the one who says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Here it is. Jesus understands that forgiveness opens the door to perpetual freedom when you are offended as well as when you are the cause of the offense. I hope you did not miss that right there. He said what you've got to understand is forgiveness will open the door when you are done wrong and forgiveness will open the door when you do wrong. Somebody I wish you could admit that you are not always the one that's offended but every now and then you do some offending and on the cross, I don't want you to miss this, Jesus is an offense to God. He is carrying the sins of the world. He is an offense to God and yet asking God to forgive him. At the same time, he is the recipient of an offense by the people he came to save. Don't miss this. Here's what he says. He says, God, I need vertical forgiveness and I need horizontal forgiveness. I need you to forgive what you see on me and forgive them for what they are doing to your child. Here it is. I got to go. Uh, what literally he says now is you've got to understand if you want to be a believer, if you want to be a disciple of Christ, you've got to learn how to pass it on. I said, God, what are you saying to me? He said, Charles, you've got to tell them that they've got to learn how to look at forgiveness as an heirloom and not a hot potato. It is not something that they just need to toss out because they want to get rid of it. It is so valuable to them that they need to understand there's some power to passing on forgiveness. I'm going to my seat, but here are my points. Uh, here it is. Number one, when you pass on forgiveness, it is a sign that you have changed your approach. Where do you get that from, preacher? Well, if you check out the Old Testament God, you will discover that God was not a, a forgiving God. He was a vengeful God. But now on Calvary, he is forgiving because what he sees is himself on the cross. He was sent to save the entire world. God says, Jesus is going to change my approach, so it should change your approach. Uh, not only that, he said, when you pass on forgiveness, it should be a remembrance of what you received. I don't know about you, but tonight, on a good Friday, I'm well aware, in the midst of a pandemic, that God could have taken me out long before the pandemic hit, after all the stuff I've done, but he keeps on forgiving me time after time, sin after sin, slip up after slip up. He keeps on forgiving me. Somebody ought to let God know that you remember what he did for you. But here's the last one, and I'm really gone. He says the first thing you got to recognize is that it sends signals you changed your approach. The second thing is that it gives you a remembrance or reminds you of what you received. But here's the last one, and I love it. He says it means that you recognize you are committed to a continued freedom. Matthew chapter number 6, verse 14 and 15 says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you don't forgive others their trespasses, neither will the Father forgive your trespasses. I'm not forgiving you because I like you. I'm forgiving you because I want to remain free. And whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Amen. 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 Amen.
Today, you will be with me in paradise. On Monday, my spiritual director, Hallie, died after suffering a debilitating disease. She was like a spiritual mother to me, one who walked with me through what I call my 14-year dark night of the soul, also known as raising young children. So paradise has special meaning, as I picture Hallie today. Dancing with Jesus, dancing with our friends who have gone before, a place where there's no more suffering, a place where there's no more pain. For those of you who don't know what a spiritual director is, it's someone who sits with you just about every month for an hour or so and helps you figure out where God is working in your life. Practically, that meant that Hallie took me back to Jesus over and over so he could help me heal from my pain. One of my favorite quotes is by Father Richard Bohr, a Franciscan monk. And he says, if you don't transform your pain, you will transmit your pain. And we know that's true. Too often, abused children become abusers. Kids of addicts become addicts. Your boss kicks you, so you kick the dog. Or you verbally kick your roommate, or your spouse, or your kids. Our pain gets rooted in our hearts, and it spews out on others, often those we love the most. As Jesus hangs on his cross between two criminals, just about everyone in this scene is transmitting pain. Just about everyone acts like an abuser. The rulers sneer. He saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers mock. If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. He's abandoned. Luke says that all who knew Jesus, including the women who followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. And one of the criminals hurls insults. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. Just about everyone is transmitting pain, except Jesus. Now, I think he felt more pain on that hill than anybody else standing there or hanging there. He's suffering excruciating physical pain, since crucifixion was as much to torture as it was to kill. He's experiencing public shame. He's stripped naked before all, every tortured breath on display for all to see and laugh at. He feels societal pain. He's the victim of incredible injustice done by the political leaders, both within his own people and the Romans. He's got the emotional pain of rejection, of taunting, abandonment, and betrayal by those who flocked to him before. And he feels the spiritual pain, the spiritual pain of separation from his God and Father while carrying all of humanity's brokenness and sin. Yet Jesus, the Son of God, who had the power to call down angel armies and all these people laughing and taunting him, doesn't transmit his pain. He doesn't spread the hate. He absorbs all our pain, and he transforms it. The criminal on his other side also takes another path. The Gospel of Mark says that those crucified with him heaped insults on him. So maybe he initially joined the other criminal in taunting Jesus. But something changes. After hours of being in Jesus' presence, hours of watching Jesus live out his own teaching, turning the other cheek, forgiving and loving his enemies, praying for those who persecute him, this criminal embraces the truth of Jesus and the truth of who he is. He says to the other criminal, don't you fear God? We deserve this, but not him. He did nothing to deserve this. And then he dares say, Jesus, remember me when you enter your kingdom. What an audacious request 
from someone who's just admitted that he deserves to be exactly where he is, hanging on a cross. And Jesus responds with some of the best news in the gospel. Don't worry, I will. Today, you won't be with me in paradise. Jesus, even on the cross, is finding another lost sheep. As a dying man begs to be remembered, Jesus gives him hope and a promise. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Rather than ending up in judgment, this criminal ends up in grace. Hallie modeled this grace-filled, lavish love of Jesus to me, even as she deeply suffered. She could listen to me talk for 40 minutes straight, without a break. Her attentive listening gave me the gift of presence, and her presence gave me a window into Jesus' presence. And the ongoing message that she brought me to constantly, God is trustworthy, even with my kids. I thought I was ruining them. But God had them, even when I died. She modeled for me what it looks like to walk with people through ups and downs, thick and thin, with human grace. Friends, what pain do you bring to the cross today? Can you come honestly to Jesus, admitting that you don't deserve it, but please, Jesus, remember me? Who, like Hallie, can help you meet Jesus so he can transform your pain? How can you, today, receive the promise of paradise? Jesus saw his mother there, and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son, and to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. You know, there aren't many people in the New Testament that we get to see at various stages in their lives, but we do get this opportunity with Mary. When we first meet Mary, she's a, likely a young, teenage, unmarried girl. You know, just being asked a simple question, can you carry the Savior of the world in your womb? Her courageous response would echo for eternity. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word be fulfilled. Nine months later, she was a pretty pivotal role as Jesus enters the world. And when Jesus is presented at the temple, Simeon prophesies about who Jesus will be, but he also has a prophecy specifically for Mary. Then Simeon blessed him and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. We can interpret that what he says here a couple different ways, and there's a lot of different layers to it, I'm sure. But I think some of the significance for her is for her role as his mother. As a mother, you open yourself up to pain. We have a 14-month-old, and it's such a privilege to get to watch my wife be an incredible mother. The depth of her empathy for our little one, the way she puts herself in her tiny shoes is amazing. She truly seems to feel her pain and discontent, discomfort, and just know what she needs in ways that I'm just not in tune with in the same way. I can't imagine the wonder and amazement that Mary would have experienced to see her, grow, her son grow as the savior of the world. I can't even fathom the pain she would have felt to watch her son die in such a horrific way. We get another glimpse of her in her late 20s when Jesus goes missing on a family trip to Jerusalem. It turns out that he was in a temple astounding people to death with his questions. And a common refrain is, refrain is repeated at this point. His mother treasured all these things in her heart. She didn't have an Instagram page to serve as a living record of special moments. She tucked them, you know, she tucked them away, carried them in her heart, and pondered them, these special things that she saw Jesus doing. And the next time we see her is in her mid-40s, at his wedding in Cana, in the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. And really, she's the one who kind of kicks, starts his ministry, because he says, my time has not yet come. And she said, I'm your mom, get moving. <laughs> and when we see Mary for the last time in her late 40s, here she is at the foot of the cross. Her life has truly had some special mountaintop experiences, but it's also had its share of hardships, which I think references the, soul, the sword that will pierce her own soul, especially here in this moment. It's clear from the context that Joseph has passed away, 
She's watched her son's meteoric rise, but she hasn't always been able to understand what he's doing or how he is interpreting his calling. She had to give Jesus to the world because the world needed Jesus. We needed him. Yeah. And now she has to suffer as no parent should have to ever suffer. She's watching her son die a horrific death. Jesus, with all the actual weight of the world on his shoulders, has every right to be caught up in the grandiosity of his task. No one would fault him for keeping his eyes forward on what's before him. But he forgives his enemies, he welcomes a thief into the kingdom, and now his attention turns back to the very first person who ever captured his attention. The person who carried him through the dangers of life. The scraped knees. The difficulty of making new friends after a move. And this last moment, Jesus makes sure that his mom will be taken care of. And he trusts John, his dear friend, to do it. In his last moments, he sees his mother. And I believe he truly sees her. He sees all that she has been through, all that she has carried, and all that she treasures in her heart. And he loves her by extending his family so that she will never have to be alone in the world. The family of God, born out of Jesus' pain, would have the task of caring for the one who had borne him. After a year with so much hardship and loss that can feel overwhelming, it's important to remember that it's an incredibly part of Jesus' very nature that he is able to carry the weight of the world yeah. and still enter into the intimacy of the things that we treasure in our own hearts. He's able to meet our specific needs and to care for us in our pain. Yeah. He loves us and created family where there wasn't family before, and the invitation is there for us to be a part of a real family, to truly be known, because Jesus truly sees you. He invites others around to truly see as well. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. 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 December of 1997, I held my seizing infant in my arms. The seizure was so severe that he didn't stop breathing. As I held him, and I thought this might be the last time. This was my third son, so I sent his older two, the two toddlers that I had walking across the street. I sent them to the neighbor across the street, and I called 911. I've never been so terrified in all of my life as in that moment. I felt desperate, alone, and abandoned. The thought th ran through my mind that I could not have any more children. At that time, my husband and I were hoping to get pregnant with our fourth child, and in that moment, I declared to myself, my heart cannot take on any more love because I could not handle this pain and abandonment that I was feeling. In Jesus' pinnacle of agony on the cross, in the moment of being a human slaughter for sacrifice, meaning he was the one who bore what we were due, that moment just prior to when the human Jesus died, Jesus cried out in agony and in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. El, my, leave God. Lama, why sabachthani have you forsaken me? Even though Jesus never ceased being God while on that cross, it is as if the Spirit of God stepped off the cross for a moment and turned his back on the human Jesus while he bore our salvation and the burden of our sin, and he did it alone. This would explain why Jesus felt forsaken by his Father. N.T. Wright says it, says it this way, Part of the whole point of the cross is that there is the weight of the world's evil converging on Jesus in this moment, blotting out the sunlight of God's love as surely as the light of day was blotted out for those three hours. We each know what it feels like to feel abandoned and desperate. I don't have to convince one person tonight that this life affords us with illusions of abandonment. Two things we can take away from these words of Jesus. His forsakenness has led to our rescue. His darkness has led to our light. His, his, his abandonment 
leads to our embrace. The God of the universe knows what it, like, it is like to be abandoned and to feel abandoned. He knows what it means to feel alone. He knows an ache that is so deep that you will do desperate things to never feel that pain again. Jesus took on the shadow of God, the momentary and excruciating place where God's love was out of reach, so that we would never experience separation from God. Having experienced the ultimate betrayal, equips the God of the universe to empathize with us in our darkest moments. We do not have a high priest who cannot empathize with us in feelings of abandonment, but we have one who stepped into the ultimate rejection so we would never be alone again. The God who cried, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, is the same God today who cries out, I will never, no, never, no, never leave you.
this last phrase, it, it seems a little bit out of place from all the other things that we have heard tonight and will hear, continue to hear. That phrase, I am thirsty, are things that I have said almost every day, that you have probably said multiple times a day. Such a simple phrase. So what is it that Jesus wants to teach us with I thirst? Teaching us about forgiveness and looking after his mother and his prayers to God. Those make sense, but what is it with this simple phrase? So I'm reading from John chapter 19, verse 28. Later knowing that everything had been finished and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. Knowing that everything had been finished. He had pleaded for people for forgiveness. He had done his earthly ministry. He was now fulfilling the purpose to be the sacrifice of our sins. He then admitted and realized, I am thirsty. How many of us can relate to that idea of getting so focused on a task that we forget our basic needs? I've had many days working and I realized, look up at four or five o'clock and realize I didn't stop to eat. And we have those days and we get zeroed in, but too often we live our lives like that. Going after it and just running after things. And we have been running in the middle of a pandemic. Maybe you've been so focused on helping your kids through distance learning. Maybe you've been worried with a teacher with your students. Maybe you've just been searching for toilet paper. We have been running this year focused on so many other things. Maybe in your job you're working along in healthcare hours or you're just trying to figure out how to do this work from home. And as we're hitting this one-year mark, I hope that we're all checking in and saying, what is it that I need? Because we all have needs, and it's very, too, way too easy to neglect our own needs. So what need have you been neglecting? What are you thirsting for? So as we ponder that, what are you thirsty for? The question then also becomes, how do you meet that thirst, that need? Verse 29, it's followed, a jar of wine vinegar was there. They soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on the stalk on a hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. Jesus cries out with a very basic need, saying, I am thirsty, and he's given vinegar. When you check in with your needs, all too often, we try to meet those needs with the equivalent of vinegar. Maybe it's through too much binge-watching on Netflix or trying to buy that new thing on Amazon or unhealthy relationships or just being stuck in the rut of the same old, same old. And that is vinegar to our inherent needs. So when you look at water and you say, I'm thirsty, water is even that on a hot day when you're parched, nothing beats a cold glass of water. And you can't help but think about water and not think about the story of Jesus with the woman at the well. And he says, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Living water. That is what quenches our thirst. So as we look ahead to another year and we look ahead to the end of this pandemic and we may resume to an even busier lifestyle in a breakneck pace, as you zero in on what that need is, I encourage us not to just look for what will fill that need in the immediate, but to look for the living water that we can keep on running that race. soul and all that is within me bless his holy name I am going to try to do this with no glasses <laughs> so Father we thank you for faith we thank you for the cross in Jesus name John 19 30 says when he had received the drink Jesus said it is 
finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up the spirit. A second wind. I have fond memories of running track and field with my good friend Charles Hodges back at, at the Swanee High School. Only a dozen of us, a ragtag team, we faced many foes, but me and Charles ran the long distance. One mile, four times around. Two miles, eight times around. And each time we would go around the track, all we had in mind was, when are we going to finish. And what we got in that moment was a second win. It means that when you're out of breath, somehow you're still able to breathe freely. And at Calvary, that was a second win moment. Three words, it is finished. In the Greek, it means to tell a style which means paid in full. And on the cross, that sin debt was paid. It did not accredit your credit score. You didn't have a payment plan. You didn't dodge the creditors or the repo, man. I'm talking to somebody. <laughs> but through it all, it was already paid. Finished, but not over. Finished, but not done, sufferings that he endured on earth were finished. The power of sin and Satan finished. Not far from here on December 20th, 2020, this 15th, I gotta get the date right, because y'all were at your seats when the Ravens were playing the Browns. And the game was looking good until Lamar went down. He went to the locker room, and the backup to the backup went down. And you were pulling on the couch. But when that happened, Lamar came back in, and it was not over. It looked like the team was finished, but Lamar came out and made something happen. I know they talked about whatever happened, but we won the game. They were not finished. You know, you and I are not finished. Even though the world may have counted you out, you're not finished. You may have disappointments, but you're not finished. You may have heartaches, but you're not finished. You may have heartbreaks, but let no one tell you that you're finished, washed up, done, out of the game because of who you serve. Can I call the Apostle Paul to the stand? Thank you, Paul. I, I, I swear to tell the whole truth, uh, but no, help me God. So Paul comes up and says, if I could just pass along a word to the jury, I would say that I've fought a good fight. I've kept the faith and I've finished the course. Now laid up for me is a crown of righteousness. And there on the cross, sometimes we miss this, that with all the blood, there was a crown of thorns on his head, piercing him in the brow at that moment. But they, they didn't realize who they were messing with. They were messing with the king of kings. And they were messing with the Lord of lords. And, and they were bothering uh, the beginning and the end. They were making fun and mocking he who's the Alpha and the Omega. And as a king's kid, we too will wear a crown one day. Not like an Emmy that you will polish up. I got one of those, praise God. It's not something to put on the shelf. But at some point, you will join the 20 and four elders in the book of Revelation. You'll fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him forever and forever and forever. And we'll cast our crowns before him saying, worthy are you. 
our Lord and God to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. Crown him with many crowns. Amen. The lamb upon the throne. Hark how the heavenly anthem drowns all music but its own. Awake my soul and sing of him who died for thee and held him as thy matchless king through all eternity. Huffing and puffing, me and Charles Hodges. On a good day, we got a third place. Slapping five, and there they are, around the track, huffing and puffing. On a better day, we got a ribbon. Me and Charles Hodges, round and round the track, and on a fair day, we got a plastic trophy. But let me tell you that we serve the Savior who has a second win. And when we continue to press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling, that Jesus will be at the finish line to welcome you home. And he'll say, well done, thy good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. Now, come on up and I'll make you ruler over me. Aren't you glad today the Lord has given you a second win? Yes. Just when you thought that life had dealt you the wrong card, you got a second win. I'm sorry, technician, I shouldn't read you mic like that, but, but you need a second win. The pandemic has put you down to a rough place, but you need a second win. We also do. Children get on your nerve, and boy, you're acting funny, but you continue to know that there he is a second week. And there is, can I jump to Easter, a risen Savior who's in the world today, and his name is Jesus. Oh, you know the end of the story. Thank God for the last words, but we thank God that he is the word. He is the truth. He is the life. It is finished. To God be the glory. Final word, seventh word, comes from Luke chapter 23, verse 46, where Jesus says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. I take my kids to the store or to the park or across the street. There is a small action that is a declaration of trust. My kids are seven and eight years old. It is a small natural action that actually declares a resounding statement of trust. The small action that is natural to them, knowing who their father is, is when they take my hand. It is a commitment of the well-being of their life, their safety, their security in an unpredictable world with unpredictable people unpredictable circumstances, there is one thing that is very predictable, and it is the security and safety of their father's hands. And when those children of mine put their hands in mine, that means they become an extension of who I am. When they intertwine and clasp their hands in their father's hand, it means they become an extension of who I am. That means we are one flesh and they entrust themselves into my control. They say, Father, take the lead. And I will follow as if we are one. 
in the gripping of hands. It is a statement and a declaration of trust in action. They know that I have their best at heart. And as long as you are in my hands, then we are one. Jesus, throughout his entire earthly ministry, committed his spirit, his life, his humanity into the Father's hands. This statement is nothing new. The action and acts and statements of his life declare that his life belonged to his father's. It says, the scriptures say, I am one with the father. I am in the father and the father is in me. I never do anything that I do not see the father doing first. I am about my father's business. I do not ever say anything that the father does not command me to say. We are one. Jesus was one with the Father by way of the Spirit, and Jesus had been in his Father's hands all along. It is a declaration of trust to the Father, a loud cry pointing to something that had been true for as long as Jesus had been alive. It is as if Jesus wanted to be sure that the writers of the Gospels heard loud and clear who it is the Son belongs to. Into whose capable and faithful hands his spirit would be committed. Even in the face of all of this, even in the face of all of this, all of this mess, I trust my father. I trust my whole self into his hands. He is the one who leads me. He is the one who heals me. He is the one who sustains me. He is the one who guides me. He is the one who restores me. He is the one who raises me. He's the one who knows me, the one who forms me, and the one who informs me. He never fails me. He never leaves me. He never forsakes me. He never lets me down. And what a beautiful declaration this statement is. It is a steadfast declaration. It is a glorious declaration. Even after all of this, the torture, the betrayal, the tragedy, the discouragement, the abuse, the violence, the mocking, the crucifixion. And he still wants the whole world to know what looks like a complete mess on a cross is a complete message for God's people. Into your hands, I continue to trust my spirit, my life, my everything. And I was thinking about this. It could have gone another way. Because it could have gone that Jesus could have entrusted himself into the hands of so many other things. There were other people, other kingdoms, other rulers. There were other governors. There there were other pieces at play that he could have trusted rather than his fathers. And I was thinking if Jesus would have committed himself into his parents' hands, then he wouldn't have been found in his father's house at 12 years old. If Jesus would have committed himself into the enemy's hands, then he would have turned over his kingdom in the wilderness. If Jesus would have committed himself to Peter's hands, then he would have never faced the cross. Get behind me, Satan. If Jesus would have committed himself into the Pharisees' hands, we would have never, we would have witnessed, never witnessed a pure manifestation of grace over law. If Jesus would have committed himself into the crowd's hands, then he would have been just another ruler seated on the throne instead of Caesar. If Jesus would have committed himself into Pontius Pilate's hands, then we would not have the spirit of the one who came to testify to the truth. If Jesus would have committed himself into the Roman soldier's hands, then the story would have ended in his torture and death. If Jesus would have committed his spirit into his own hands, then he would have disassociated himself from the Father, and he would have committed himself to death. But because of the... But this is something that I don't want to miss. In thinking about whose hands we commit ourselves to, Into whose hands, into what hands we commit our spirit to on a daily basis. This is something that came to me and I don't want to miss. And I want to make sure I say this right. The limited agent, item, or capacity by which you commit your life to 
determines the limited capacity to which you will be able to rise. The limited agent, idol, or capacity by which you commit your life to determines the limited capacity to which you are able to rise. You can only live up to the standard of the thing that you put your trust in. So we got to be careful, church, whose hands and what things we're committing ourselves to. Be careful about your life, your well-being, your worth, your identity, your purpose, your heart, your desires. Be careful about what hands you're placing those things into because here's the truth. They all have a cap. They got a ceiling. They all have an end. So when Jesus commits himself into the Father's hands, he is committing himself and uniting himself with the one in whom there is limitless capacity. There is no cap. There is limitless love. There is infinite power. There is surpassing greatness. There is ceaseless streams of living water. There is an abundance of provision. There is a fountain of eternal life. There is no bounds of time and space. There is a standing from age to age. There is a word that endures forever. There is a faithfulness that lasts forever. And so knowing all of this, whom am I going to choose to commit my life and my spirit to? Because I've been failed by everything that I've trusted my well-being into the hands of. Every single thing that I've trusted, my heart, my desires, myself, everything that I've trusted in this world at some point or another has let me down. But when I entrust my spirit into the hands of the Father, I can rest assured that he will never fail to carry me. And with a loud voice, I declare, along with my Savior, in echo on this good Friday, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. Yes.